Section 9 of The Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 9. Sir Robert Walpole. Robert Walpole, thus called to high office in the nation's need, was the third son of a country gentleman born at his father's place, Houghton, in Norfolk. He was educated at Eton and afterwards at King's College, Cambridge, but beyond a few quotations from Horace, not much of his learning clung to him. Both of his brothers died before he was twenty-two, and his father when he was twenty-four, at which age, in the year 1700, he was returned to Parliament for a small family borough. From the first, a zealous Whig, Walpole soon showed his value to his party and was rewarded with office. He was made Secretary of War and later Treasurer of the Navy. When, after Sacheverell's trial, the Whigs went out of office, Walpole, who had been one of the managers in that trial, though he felt the policy of it to be mistaken, retired with his party, and the victorious Tories carried a resolution that he had been guilty of breach of trust and notorious corruption. Walpole was even sent to the Tower and kept there for a few months. But such manifest party action only helped him, and when the Whigs were restored to power on the accession of the new king, Walpole was made paymaster of the forces and afterwards chancellor of the exchequer. Differing, however, from his colleagues, he resigned and remained in opposition until just before the bursting of the South Sea bubble when he returned to office. Fortunately, he had no more share in the South Sea scheme than to have speculated for himself and with wise prescience to have sold out in time. The public, therefore, looked to him, and his success in devising healing measures after the disaster, together with his great skill in finance, made him first Lord of the Treasury as well as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Sir Robert Walpole was Chief Minister of England for no less than twenty-one years. A knowledge of his character would hardly have led anyone beforehand to expect that he would have enjoyed so long a tenure of power. He seemed to be a hardy, good-natured country squire, very fond of country pursuits, especially of all kinds of sport. The House of Commons very rarely does any work upon a Saturday, and a former Speaker of the House attributed this Saturday holiday to Walpole's love of hunting. Walpole was not a leader of the people calculated to rouse enthusiasm for himself. Indeed, he did not believe in enthusiasm, and did not covet popularity. He did not want people's love. He wanted the votes of members. In order to excite enthusiasm and love amongst the people at large, a statesman must have some of the qualities that dazzle, such as the gifts of oratory, or he must initiate and carry out great changes and reforms, or must bring a nation successfully through a great war. Walpole was no orator, but a common-sense business speaker. He hated change, and he hated the very idea of war but history is bound to do justice to a statesman, even if his contemporaries did not love him, and to remember both what is seen and what is not seen. Walpole deserves every credit for steering England clear from dangers which threatened, and for giving to an exhausted country a period of much-needed rest. 
a reforming minister, eager for great changes, would not have been of advantage to the country at that particular time. The succession was disputed. The new dynasty was in itself unpopular, and great political dissensions might have given a handle to the Jacobites and have plunged the country into the horrors of civil war. Quieta non movere, Walpole's favorite maxim, which may be translated by the equivalent maxim of a modern statesman, why can you not let it alone, is not a high-souled motto, but there are times when it is wise. Even when Walpole agreed with the reform, he preferred to let it alone. He was in favor of toleration of dissenters, and the dissenters were supporters of his policy. Whenever measures of toleration were pressed upon him, he would declare his sympathy, but urged that the time had not arrived. The time, it may be added, never did arrive. Walpole was a good-humored, easy-going man, though doubtless too fond of making things smooth. The love of peace mentioned by his biographer as the uniform principle of his administration was shown in the determination to keep England free from continental wars as well as in the desire for political peace at home. Fifty thousand men slain in Europe this year, and not one Englishman, was once his proud boast, and a nation weary of fighting other people's battles was glad for the rest. When later the nation was ready for war and drove Walpole into it, he felt himself out of place and was unhappy accordingly. It would have been better for his reputation had he resigned office rather than declare war. Walpole's own character and personal inclinations to a remarkable extent decided the policy of England. It is noteworthy how in them he differed both from the past and from the future of the Whig party to which he belonged. From the Revolution onwards, that is, almost since the formation of the party, the Whigs had been in favor of a vigorous continental policy of war with France. This was partly to a blind following of William III, partly to the fact that France was regarded as the main friend of the Stuarts. Amongst modern politicians, the party of reform traces its traditional descent from the Whigs, so that Walpole, as a party leader, ranks as a predecessor of Lord John Russell. As a peace minister, he would receive the admiration of many modern liberals. Walpole's constant good nature was shown in his clemency and moderation toward opponents. The need of making an example would have driven many ministers into severer measures against the Jacobites, constantly engaged in small plots which might develop into danger. Walpole studiously avoided severity and winked at their plottings rather than punish them. No minister was ever more attacked by libels. None was more slow to prosecute. The gravest charge against Walpole is that he made systematic use of corruption and bribery. Every man has his price, is the saying usually attributed to him. It has been proved that this is not exactly what he said. Speaking of a group of members, he once said, Each of these men has his price. There is no doubt whatever that Walpole systematically bought the votes of members, using what is known as the Secret Service money for the purpose. Modern writers have defended Walpole upon different grounds. 
For instance, it is more honest and not morally worse to buy political support with money than with promises of appointments. Corruption was the fault of the age, and it is unfair to judge any man without regarding the morality of his time. There is no doubt that the secrecy with which parliamentary proceedings were conducted was very helpful to this corruption. Bribery has many forms. In Walpole's time it took the form of buying the votes of members, in a later time of buying the votes of constituents. In either shape it is equally wrong, equally hurtful to the best interests of the nation. In so far as Walpole fostered this vice, he did harm to the morals of the nation. Had he desired, he might have led public opinion to greater political purity, but probably such a thought never even entered his head. Walpole's attitude towards purity and political enthusiasm was almost more hurtful of public morality. He was always sneering at the enthusiasm of young members, deliberately setting himself to laugh at their standard, if higher than his own. A young man would be elected to the House, full of patriotism, full of desire to do good, untainted by corruption. Walpole would call him an ancient Roman, and assure him that he would soon come off that. It was he who gave the nickname of the boys to a small cluster of these young enthusiasts, one of whom, William Pitt, a young cornet of horse, never came off that, remained untouched by the bribery and corruption, and in the generation after Walpole, raised the morality of the whole English nation by the example, he said, of disinterestedness in politics and of earnest patriotism. Walpole's strongest point as a statesman was his finance. In this respect, he was not only far superior to his contemporaries, but it is necessary to go forward a century to find his equal. The financial measures that Walpole took to restore public confidence after the South Sea bubble formed the firm basis of his long tenure of power. It will be remembered that one of the chief inducements for Parliament to accept the bill was that the South Sea Company meant to reduce, if not extinguish, the national debt. When first the nation incurred a large debt, shrewd financiers, as well as people who knew nothing of finance, were alarmed at its existence, and still more alarmed as the amount of it grew. In our own time, the debt is so much larger and has lasted so long without disastrous results that we are more inclined to commit the opposite fault and to think too little of the debt. The growth or diminution of the national debt is a sure indication of the history of the nation. If a table were made showing the state of the debt in each year during the 18th century, it would be easy to infer from the table whether England was in any given year at war or peace. Increasing debt meant war, and during the latter part of the century the increase in some years was enormous. Decreasing debt meant peace. Under Walpole, let it be remembered to his honor, the debt decreased. It is true that the decrease is never on so rapid a scale as the increase. It has been pointed out that it is the peculiar honor of the reign of George I that in it the national debt grew smaller, whereas in the reigns of his immediate predecessors and successors the debt increased, and even in an increasing ratio. 
It must be added that the decrease is due to the policy of Walpole, and that he deserves the credit for it. Nothing more clearly marks the true character of his policy than the statement that in seventeen years, dating from January 1, 1723, eight millions of the debt were paid off. At the accession of George I, fifty-four and a quarter millions. When the South Sea Trouble was over, fifty-five and a quarter millions. At the end of 1739, practical close of Walpole's financial policy, forty-seven millions. In 1748, peace of Aix-la-Chapelle, seventy-seven millions. In 1755, reduced to seventy-two and a quarter millions. And in 1763, at the end of the Seven Years' War, 139 millions. Neither a nation nor an individual should be guided in the choice of a course to be pursued solely by money considerations, but as we blame an individual who rashly incurs debt, we may, to some extent, estimate the policy of a minister by his care of the public purse. Although this amount of debt was paid off during the peace, and though we praise Walpole for having done so much, complaint has been made that he did not effect more. At least two eminent men have complained that the debt was not paid off altogether, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations and the younger Pitt. Not only did Walpole look after the principal, but by skillful management he reduced the burden of the charges, and this is in a much greater proportion. The growing prosperity of England made money more abundant, and when an article is more abundant, it becomes cheaper. Walpole took advantage of this to reduce the rate of interest on the national debt. This he effected before he had done much with the principal. A few figures will make his success clear. In round numbers, the debt at the accession of George I was fifty-four millions and cost three million three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. At his death, it was fifty-two millions and cost two million two hundred and twenty thousand pounds. With respect to the reduction of the debt, Walpole was in favor of what is known as a sinking fund. This meant that a sum of money should be set aside every year so that a fund would grow by compound interest and by annual increments until it was large enough to extinguish the debt. The objections to this plan, though it afterwards received the support of the younger Pitt, are twofold. It is cumbrous and indirect, for there is no reason why the money should not be applied directly each year to the reduction of debt. Also, this fund would present each year a temptation to the Chancellor of the Exchequer if he had any difficulty in providing money from other sources. This sinking fund Walpole established but he himself was not proof against the temptation indicated. It seems to be using the language of a different period to speak of Walpole as in favor of free trade, but he abolished a great many duties, both on imports and exports. Above everything, he was very careful of the public money, except in the single matter of payment for parliamentary support. In secret service money, he was lavish. Whilst Walpole was in power, the wealth of the country increased to a very marked extent, wise financial measures cooperating with peace to produce this result. In connection with a financial question, a very curious disturbance arose in Ireland toward the close of the reign of George I. There had been a scarcity of copper money, 
and in the exercise of the king's prerogative a patent was granted to a Birmingham ironmaster of the name of Wood to coin a large quantity of such money. The patent was correctly drawn. The granting of it undoubtedly lay within the prerogative of the king. The officers of the mint had tested the coin, and the master of the mint was no less a man than Sir Isaac Newton. For some reasons never clearly explained, a feeling at once arose in Ireland against the new money. Probably it was because Wood, a Birmingham speculator, and in himself a man of unpleasant, swaggering manners, was an Englishman. This feeling was shared and expressed by the Irish Parliament, which had never been consulted in the matter. But then it must be remembered that had a similar patent been granted in England, it would not have been submitted to the Parliament at Westminster. The feeling would in all probability have died away, had it not been for the part played by Dean Swift, who had been living almost in retirement in Dublin since the death of Queen Anne and the ejection of the Tories, had destroyed his hopes of promotion. He wrote a series of seven letters signed by M. B. Drapier, in which he pretended to be an unlettered tradesman, abusing the money, and all who were concerned in the patent, saving the king's majesty. The Lord Lieutenant strongly advised the ministers to yield, and Walpole knew how to yield with grace. The patent was withdrawn, and Swift became the idol of the Irish people. Never had a literary man such a triumph, for through the power of his pen, the worst cause prevailed. End of section 9